0: Turn to Romans 8, if you would please. uh, If you picked up one of the Bibles on the way in, it's on page 786. This is a magnificent chapter in the New Testament. Uh, One of the real high points of many uh, in Scripture. It's about the Holy Spirit. And it begins, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You remember uh, that scene in Good Will Hunting where the, um, the Robin Williams character, he's the, he's the therapist, is, is trying to, to pull out the, the, the Matt Damon character. He's just, this, this guy is brilliant, Matt Damon's character. You know, he's a genius, he's handsome, he's Matt Damon. You know. uh, but he, he is from a blue collar family, he doesn't have a lot of formal education, He has no sense of his self-worth. He doesn't feel like he's worthy of of many driver. And so uh, in this wonderful scene, Robin Williams, the late Robin Williams, embraces him, and he's he's trying to break through something that is holding Will back. He says, you know, Will, it's not your fault. And Will says, yeah, I know, I know. He says it again, it's not your fault, okay. How many times? I forget how many times. He says it again and again. And you know folks, what I, if I thought it would be the best use of our time, I would just stand up here this morning and for the next 30 minutes try to lock eyes with everyone of you and say, you know, don't you, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. You do not live under the condemnation of God That's why Jesus came, that's why he did what he did, that's why he died the way he died, so that we could look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I do not stand under the condemnation of God. And if I could break through, Christians especially, with that reality, it'd be the greatest gift I think I could give in my life. So for the next few minutes, let's let's hear how Paul develops that thought. Let's look at the text and see how he presents to us the work of the Holy Spirit as precisely that agenda, the the agenda of the Holy Spirit is to be so powerfully present in your life and in your mind that you do not live under condemnation because of what Jesus did. The whole concept of the Holy Spirit always deserves a a fresh look, I think. There's been so much confusion uh, about the Spirit. I don't know what you think of when you first hear Holy Spirit. It has been called the Cinderella of Christian doctrines because it is beautiful, but ignored, okay? When I grew up, they were still calling him the Holy Ghost. Uh, That creates a lot of problems, you know? So that's the way God scares us into being good, right? Through the Holy Ghost, you know? That's a mistranslation. The word in Greek is pneuma. It gives us pneumonia, an affliction, unfortunately, an affliction of respiration, of breathing. Because it means breath, that's what it means. It means breath or wind. And so the Holy Spirit is is no specter from from beyond the grave. It is is the breath of God. You meet the Holy Spirit in the second verse of the Bible. Remember how it all starts? Says this is how God created the heavens and the earth. Everything was dark. There was an abyss, emptiness everywhere, nothingness. But the Spirit of God was hovering. And then things start to happen. God speaks and everything changes. Because the Spirit of God was present to create what had never been before. That's a way to think about the Holy Spirit. And then growing up, I don't know how it was for you, but for a lot of us that we kind of lived with the retired author theory, the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture. That's another respiration word. It is the breath of God, and as it indeed is, I think, in this, in this word that God has given us. But the, but the notion I was sold on for the longest time was the Spirit basically did one thing. He inspired the writing of Scripture, then he moved off to Boca or somewhere in retirement, and he hasn't been seen since. That's certainly not the way Jesus thought of the Holy Spirit. One of the best studies of the Holy Spirit, I'll just suggest this to you for another day, is John 14 through 17. It is, it is what Jesus did and taught in the upper room just before he went to the cross. And three times in three successive chapters, Jesus is saying as he's about to finish his work on this earth, he says, you know, I'm gonna leave, but I'm not gonna leave you orphaned, when I leave, another counselor will come, the Holy Spirit of God, and He will be with you, and He will remind you of of everything I have taught you, and He will stand by you. For Jesus, the Holy Spirit was an ever-present reality for those of us that walk with Him. The Holy Spirit is how God stands by us. When the night has come and the land is dark and the moon is the only light we'll see, no, I won't be afraid, no, I won't shed a tear, just as long as you stand, stand by me. That's not from the message, that's Ben E. King circa 1968, a great rock and roll song. That's the Spirit. It is the presence of God accompanying us through our walk from here to eternity we need to get over our phobia. We've ignored and marginalized and dare I say, neutered the Holy Spirit for too long. Someone said one time, you know, if God chose to withdraw the Holy Spirit from all churches, just decided to cancel out the Holy Spirit, about 95% of what happens in most churches would go on uninterrupted, unchanged. That is, a, that is a frightening um, accusa- accusation to make, but it, it may be true, because we've learned to do it ourselves. We've learned in our wisdom and in our sophistication to, 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 to run our churches, to run our families of faith in, in, in ways that, that show very little dependence most days on the one who wants to walk with us and empower us for the life of in Jesus, so that's why my best working definition, I borrowed this from somebody of the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit is God as power at work in men and women who follow Jesus. God at work as power in disciples of Jesus. So we're gonna gonna take that, and we're gonna work through this section, the first part of Romans 8, for just the next few minutes. There are three things, three jobs of the Holy Spirit that I see emerging here. One is the job of the Holy Spirit is to clear the air of condemnation. Two, the job of the Holy Spirit is to empower us to live the lives God created us to live. And thirdly, the job of the Holy Spirit is to testify to you and me who we really are in the eyes of God. First of all, The job of the Holy Spirit is to to clear the air of this spirit, this, this life draining, crippling spirit of living under condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, there's our Holy Spirit, has set me free from the law of sin and death. That's that dark cloud that not just hangs over the lives of a lot of religious people, but a whole lot of non-religious people too, I think. That spirit, that, that, that goodwill hunting spirit, I'm, I'm worthless, I'm not you know, attractive, I'm not worthy. It's, I call it the Linda Ronstadt syndrome. You're no good, you're no good, you're go, no good baby, you're no good. And I promise that's the last baby boomer rock and roll song I will quote in this sermon. (laughs) Preachers are a lot to blame for that, I know that. Uh, Sometimes the voice you hear from those of us who who preach a lot is is shame on you, you know. Shame on you for lying, shame on you for lusting, shame on you for falling asleep in my sermons, shame, shame, shame. Well, you know, uh, shame's not an altogether bad thing. Uh, We need a little shame in our lives, I think person who's cruel, person who's bigoted, person who's violent. If they feel no shame, we have a word for that. Sociopath. Okay. So shame in its moment is getting us somewhere, but that's the point. It's it's not a destination. My goodness, it's not meant to be a destination. It's meant to be moral conviction. And that's where Paul's going here. He's going to take the concept of law for the Israelites, for the Jewish Christians uh, in Rome, they understood law. They had grown up under Torah, God's law. But the, but the Gentiles hadn't, but they still understood law and order. Boy, if you grew up in the Roman Empire, you understood law and order. That which, that which oversaw the Pax Romana that kept everybody in place. So Paul will argue, as he, as he does here and elsewhere, he says, okay, Think, think with me for a minute about law. Law is, is not an altogether bad thing at all. Uh, we would be in bad shape without, without standards of right and wrong. There, there can be no civil society without law, no safe society, no safe neighborhood without law. Okay. But God did not give us law, in the best sense, expressions of his holy nature, the word of the creator for the best life, how to live the best life as his created. God did not give us law so we could live lives of self-loathing, live under a cloud of shame. Chuck Palahniuk who wrote, uh, you know, wrote Fight Club said, when we don't know who to hate, we hate ourselves. Um, and that's right, I think we, we look around for something, some, something to do with this moral passion that we have and this frustration with the world. And for many people, for many of us, it just turns, it just turns dark and it turns into cynicism or it turns back on ourselves. And so law just becomes a curse and a source of shame. But that's not God's notion of how to, to live life as he created it for us. Here's the best picture, the very best picture of how this works, I think, and it comes from the life of Jesus. Big surprise. It's in John 8. One day, Jesus is being tested as he was many times by the religious police, the Pharisees, and they dump this woman at his feet. You probably know this story. She had been caught in the act of adultery, red-handed. She's in a bad place here. She was in a bad place before she got dumped at Jesus' feet. Affairs are bad for you, newsflash. I have talked to too many broken husbands or wives over many years to think other, anything other than that an affair is one of the worst things you can do to love, one, one of the worst things you can do to covenant, one of the worst things you can do to another human being, and, and it's almost impossible to get over. So she's in a bad place here. We don't know why she was having an affair. Maybe she was just one of those people who didn't think much of herself. She hadn't found much joy in this world. You, you know, you seek whatever pleasure you can find. For whatever reason, she has been caught and brought to Jesus. Now, the people who bring her to Jesus, the religious police, are not interested in justice. they're not bringing this woman to him so that we can work out the just uh, reckoning of of her behavior and and what needs to happen next. She is nothing but bait. And by the way, where's the guy? Where's the guy who was committing adultery with her? The guy gets a pass. But she has been brought to try to to hook Jesus into, into one of two horns of a dilemma, either he says, well, okay, she broke the law, give her the punishment. Or, yeah, she broke the law, but let's be, let's be gracious. So they say to him, rabbi, shall we stone this woman? And Jesus brilliantly, watch what he does. It's just, it's masterful. What else would the master do? It's masterful. He says, okay, if there's supposed to be a stoning here today, then I guess the one of you, uh, who is without sin should start, start it off. And, and thankfully that day there's enough moral awareness in this group of religious policemen that they, uh, they get it. And, and the text says beginning with the older ones who probably had a lot more to reflect on in terms of their track record, uh, they left first and finally it's just Jesus and the woman. And he turns to her and he says, where are your condemners? Who condemns you? And I'm thinking she kind of looks around to make sure the coast is clear of condemners and she says, no man, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And you can go. He lets her go. But as she prepares to leave, remember what he says. He says, you know, this is a bad way to live. This is self-destructive. This is a life of sin that you've gotten caught up in. Leave it, get out of it. I was, I was talking, I was having coffee with Dave. No, we were having barbecue actually. Dave Clayton earlier this week and, and talking about this, Dave's helping me get ready. He didn't wanna just, he and Brandon don't wanna just spring me on you totally unprepared. And Dave says, you know what he does? He doesn't, he doesn't con- condemn her, he convicts her. That's what he does. It's not condemnation, but it is conviction because Jesus loves her enough to not leave her in this state of self-destruction. And oh, by the way, in a few weeks, He'll do something else for her. He will die for her to show the full extent of God's love for, for us to be the sacrifice that we all need for our sins because He ends up living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died. And when he's resurrected, he brings into the world, he shows the world a power over sin that allows us to say in that, in that wonderful passage, Brandon read from the later in Romans eight, who will, who will condemn who God justifies? No one. Who will stand in court, stand up against God, who says, this is my justified son, my justified daughter, who will say, no, well, I, my condemnation trumps God's justification. No. So here Jesus shows us, I see the, you see the power of of a concept of law, a concept of righteousness that calls us to the life that we were meant to live. But he says further in Romans eight, he says, you know, The law is a good thing then, but it is ultimately powerless. Picking up the reading in verse 3, for the law was powerless to do… For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, by our inability to keep it. God did what the law was powerless to do, God was powerful to do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature any longer, but according to the law of the Spirit." Here's here's the foundational, radical, Christian doctrine of substitutionary atonement and there's no way in this or a dozen other sermons I could do justice to that. But you know it is the one claim that the Christian faith makes that that no other faith has ever made, and that is there is a covering for sin that was made possible by the death of God, God's Son, Jesus Christ. He paid the debt he did not owe. We owed a debt we could not pay. And so the condemnation was lifted from us. Law is a good thing. It can point out what's wrong. And we need somebody sometimes to give us moral instruction and say, that is destructive. That is a dead end. That will only end in death and destruction. That's, a, that's helpful. But the law doesn't have the power to transform. That's where the spirit comes in, you see. Reminds me of some people I know who, who just, they're really good at pointing out the problem, but beyond that, they're kind of useless. There's a, there's a Peanuts cartoon where Lucy's talking to Charlie Brown. And she says, you know, Charlie Brown, you know what the whole problem with you is? The whole problem with you is that you're you. And Charlie Brown says, well, what can I do about that? And she says, I don't pretend to uh, offer solutions. I just point out problems. Well, that's kind of what the law does in Paul's picture here. He says it points out the problem, but thank God someone makes solutions, and that's God through Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, that's that's job one as I see it emerging here. Job two, and this is shorter. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to live the life that God created us for, beginning in verse nine. You, therefore, are controlled now in Christ, not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Listen to this next one. This, this will… this is staggering if we hear it, uh, you know, right between the eyes. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. My pages are stuck together. Oh, there's that barbecue. (laughs) Dave is such a messy eater. (laughs) If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised, Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. What did God create us for? One of the best ways to, to, to answer that question, what is God's greatest intention for us just in how life, we experience life day in, day out, it comes in a little discussion in another one of Paul's books in Galatians, which is considered the, the companion piece to Romans. It's shorter, but it has many of the same themes. He says, when the spirit is bearing fruit in your life, when the spirit that lives in you, the spirit of life is bringing forth life, living, living qualities, living joys in you, this is, what, this is what you'll see. This is what you'll experience. This is Galatians 5, verse uh, 22. If you wanna look it up, it's page 813. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then, then Paul says the, the weirdest thing, unless you've read Romans 8, he says, and, and you know, against those things, there's no law. There's no law against peace and patience and joy and kindness, because there doesn't need to be. That's the, that's the ideal human experience. We don't need laws to, to make that possible. The Spirit of God brings that from God Himself. But did you hear what he said? He said, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Jesus. That's pretty unambiguous. And I will tell you, I have had a lot of conversations over a lot of years with people that began, well, what do you, what do you have to do to be a Christian? It always feels like kind of a lowest common denominator discussion but but what what are the essentials? And how many different ways have you heard that 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 formula completed that blank filled in? Well, you can't be a Christian unless you mm. You're no Christian if you mm. And how many times, precious few I think, has that been completed? You can really not claim to be a man or a woman in Christ if you don't have the spirit of Christ. We've talked about the rapture and we've talked about the proper way to do worship and we've talked about, you know, premillennial theories and all kinds of things that you've got to believe this or you can't believe that. But Paul kind of nails it when he says, you know, there's no life in Christ unless you have the way, the means, the vehicle of life that God has given as a free gift to every person who, who has been baptized into, into Jesus and walks daily with Jesus. That's kind, of the, that's kind of the acid test. Sometimes I think we ask all the wrong questions when we open this book. Or at least we don't ask the questions in the right order because there's a center out of which Christian theology, can I say it this way, out of of which the life in Christ grows. And if the center is missing, then then nothing else holds. And this is the center. This is right at the center, the living presence of God and His Spirit, the Spirit of life in the middle of your life. And you know what you get when you don't live a life where the center is, is, is what it should be? You know what you call an off-centered life? Eccentric. It's just eccentric. And Paul's helping me a lot here by saying, make sure that you've got at the center God's precious gift of the Spirit. Talk about asking the right question. Um, Some years ago, I fell in love and I approached the father of my intended um, to ask his blessing on our marriage. Problem was, I was past 50 years old and uh, the father-in-law to be in question was Norval Magnusson, Nancy's dad, who's very much like his, the people he grew up, he came from in Iceland. Wonderful man, very Christian man. But not the easiest, how do I say this and I hope it doesn't get back to Bellingham, Washington. Not the easiest person in the world to just have a, a nice warm conversation with. I love my father-in-law. But anyway, I would preached three times that day. In, in Malibu, I guess, and, and Norval had come and, and Joan, my mother-in-law, and, and so nervously, it was lunchtime, and, and I said, Norval, I, I need to ask you something. I need to talk to you about something. And he said, well, I've been listening to you all morning, so I guess I can listen a little longer. <laughs> okay, off to a good start here, you know. Um, Norval, I want to marry Nancy, and I would love to have your blessing. Long silence. All right, he said, I have one question. I thought, here it comes. What, this is, what in the world is, is the test question going to be? Oh, I hope I pass. He said, I just want to ask you one thing. He says, uh, have you made Jesus Christ your personal Savior? I thought, I've been a preacher for 30 years. <laughs> How do you ask a preacher that question? But then I thought again. That's a great question. man wants to marry your daughter? That's the question you might want to ask him first. Yeah, that's the question he asked me. God bless Norval Magnuson for asking the right question. Paul wants us to ask the right questions about what it is to be in Christ. And to be in Christ is to live the life of the Spirit and quit ignoring it, quit neutering it, and quit marginalizing it. Because when there is no spirit in our lives, I think this is what Paul is trying to say, there can be no power, because that's how, Paul, how God brings the power to our lives. God present with power in our lives. And what kind of power does he say? Resurrection, nothing less than resurrection power. Not the power of positive thinking, not the power of really good living, the power over sin and death. The same power that brought Jesus out of that tomb on the third day is now available to you and me through the Spirit of God. I, lo- I love the illustration that Dallas Willard, the late Dallas Willard uses, some, some of you have heard me tell it before if you've been in my class, because uh, I tell it all the time. Dallas Willard grew up in southern Missouri and he said on our farm we had no electricity. No electricity. We were one of those old fa- farm families, you know, we had coal stoves and, 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 and we lit with, with oil lamps and, and then one day, He said a bunch of trucks came out from town. They were representatives of the REA, the Rural Electrification Administration. And they started putting poles in the ground, and they started stringing lines between the poles, and electricity had come to southern Missouri, to rural southern Missouri. He said we we had a choice to make, though, and that choice was to repent or not. Because the, the point he was trying to make in this context was, the first thing Jesus said when he came preaching was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, some changes are going to be necessary if you want to receive, if you want to plug into the power of the kingdom of God. Dallas Willard said, the message to us farm families was, repent for the kingdom of electricity is at hand. Now will you, are you willing to change your your lifestyle? Are you willing to make those necessary changes? Let me read you just this line from this is from his, his wonderful book, The Divine Conspiracy. When those lines came by our farm, a very different way of living presented itself, our relationship to all the fundamental aspects of life, daylight and dark, hot and cold, clean and dirty, work and leisure, preparing food and preserving it. All those things could now be vastly changed for the better, but we still had to believe in electricity and take the steps involved in relying on it. I think that's the offer that the Spirit makes to us. Are you willing to repent and plug in to the kingdom of the power of resurrection? That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, whatever you do, don't put out the Spirit's fire. That's your power. And Barbara Brown Taylor says, when we we fail to rely upon the Spirit and give it its just place in our life, we are, this is her phrase, sapping God's strength. I love that. Job three. The Spirit's job is to testify to who we really are in the eyes of God. Verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You received a spirit, the spirit of sonship. Now, by the way, just let me pause here and say this, in this passage, son is, is a generic term. It is meant to, comp- to include both genders, okay? Not just men. Uh, in his, in the, what he's doing here, he's, he's working his way toward talking about inheritance. And in that culture, sad to say, only men inherited. So to make that work, he talks about the sons and their inheritance, but but believe me, I fully fully know that, that Paul is talking about sons and daughters here. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship and daughtership, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. A couple of wonderful things in this third part of Paul's picture here. First of all, he says, "God, God doesn't want slaves. He wants sons and daughters, okay? And the job of the Holy Spirit is to convince you to testify with your spirit in your head, in your heart, in your ears that you are indeed a daughter or a son of God because of what Jesus has done. Jesus told him a, a wonderful parable that I think, that, uh, I think captures this. It's, it's the parable of the depressed pig feeder. It says that a certain young man went to his father, claimed his share of the estate, went to a far country, blew it all. Woke up one day, a highly depressed Jewish pig feeder, which is not a good place to be, Jewish or not. And in that moment, Jesus says in that parable, the prodigal son, love this phrase, came to himself. Somehow he got out of touch with himself. Somehow he became disengaged or fragmented or something. But he, it's like that Snickers commercial, you know, you're not yourself when you're hungry. So eat a Snickers. If only it were that easy to be myself again. Well, in this realization, he says, For me, being myself means going home. So all the way home, he he concocts, that's not a fair way to say it, he rehearses a wonderful speech and the speech goes something like this. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a hired man. That's it, he feels like that's his best gambit. That's his best hope because he has blown it so big time. He has messed up so much. Sonship is now off the table, he thinks. Okay, he gets home. Father runs out to greet him. He starts into his speech. Father, looking at his notes, probably written on his hand, Father, I have sinned against heaven against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father interrupts the speech. He didn't get to make the rest of the speech because, you know what, the son had his father at hello. And everything that happens in that parable between the father and the prodigal son, from that point on is the father convincing the son that he's still a son. That no matter that he has blown it big time, done incredibly stupid and wasteful and self-destructive things, he's still a son. Gives him a ring, gives him a robe, gives him new sandals, kills the fatted calf, calls the whole neighborhood in to celebrate, and every one of those and more says, my son, my son, my son, there is no condemnation, there is no condemnation, there is no condemnation. I never stop loving you. There's nothing you can do to make me love you more. There's nothing you could do to make me love you less. You are my son, as he would have just as well said, you are my daughter. And that, folks, is what the Spirit of God needs to witness to in your head and mind. And that's what Paul says he's there to do. He's there to bear witness. And you know how, the, how we really experience this in the most powerful way? Paul says, by, by being able to call God Abba, Father. I, I'm just about done, but I've got to spend a moment with that, that great word. You know, you, you've heard about Abba, right? It's an Aramaic word, it is, it is a baby word, Da da, Abba. You see, there's something about babies when they start to talk, and, and one, one of the first things We've got a new grandson, we're gonna go see him next weekend, he's not there yet, he's only about two months old, but just watching the personhood emerge in a baby is an incredible thing, and especially the awareness that, first of all, there are people around, you know, and they look at you funny, and and later on, they start to talk to you, and they're using the only words they can make. And And when a child makes his first connection with his father, or his mother, he uses the only kind of sounds he can make, and, and those are sounds you can, you can never make. These are sounds you can only make when you don't have teeth. That's how I say it, okay? Yeah. Ah, bah, bah, Forget father. See, father father fathering the teeth against the lip. The. There's a sort, certain sounds that aren't available to you for a while, but the ones that are, you use to make that first connection with this person that you are learning every day to really rely on for everything. Count on that person to always be there for you to give you everything you need. That's your Abba. Joachim Yeremias is a Jewish Christian scholar and he says there is no parallel to this in rabbinic literature. There is no place in the history of writings from the Jewish world prior to this where anybody calls God Daddy, Abba. It is that affectionate, it's that intimate, it's that radical. And and Paul says, you know that word that Jesus used in Gethsemane, look it up in Mark 14. We are empowered to use that same word to address the Creator. And when the Spirit of God gets in our head and allows us to fully embrace and use that word, then there is a testimony to who we are, that should wipe away any notion of condemnation or unworthiness. What a great gift that is. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's sons and daughters. If I had time, I would I would work out how that testify thing works. It's, it's a courtroom term. When Paul gets really serious about what's going on in the heavenly places, he almost always sets it in the courtroom of eternity. And it's always us before the judgment bar and the accuser that is Satan. That's what Satan means. Satan or diabolos, devil means accuser. And so one stands against us, accusing us. He's no good, she's no good. They're no good, baby, they're no good. But another witness comes into the court and says, no, 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 I testify that this woman, this man rightly calls God, Abba. Who can condemn those whom God justifies? Last picture. When I was, I was preaching in Washington, D.C. some years ago, and um, a friend of mine called me up, and he said, would you like to meet the chaplain of the Senate? I said, yeah, I knew who that was. He was a pretty famous uh, person in, in, within the Beltway back then. His name was Lloyd John Ogilvy. He'd been a very uh, influential preacher, a Presbyterian minister on the West Coast. And now he was the chaplain of the Senate. He served for like four terms in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so, with this uh, invite, this connection, uh, I went and had coffee with him there in the Capitol. His office was in the Capitol for Pete's sake, you know, and we're sitting there, and uh, he said, let me tell you a story about me uh, as a young minister. Um, He said, I went off to the University uh, of Edinburgh in Scotland to study under the great James Stewart, great New Testament scholar. He said, I was a good student, a really good student. I could believe it because this guy was really smart. He said, but I I had only words, that's all I had. I was a great student, I wrote great papers, but I woke up every day convinced that I had to convince God to love me all over again. I had to demonstrate I had to earn His salvation every day. He said, it was crippling my my life outside of the classroom and probably inside the classroom. He said, I confessed this to this old professor, James Stewart, and he said, here's the line, he said, Professor, I have the words, but I don't have the music. I have the words, but I don't have the music. He said, the old man got up from his chair, he came across, he grabbed me by both lapels. I wore this jacket just so i held lapels. He said, John, listen to me. I want to give you four words of surpassing grace. Are you listening? You are loved now. You are loved now by God, just as you are. Boy, John Ogilvy said from that moment on, I had my music. We're gonna go to the table in just a moment. The table's been set all around the room here. And when you go to that table, know that you are welcomed at that table. You may feel like, you know, that woman caught in adultery like, you know, well, all hope is gone because I have blown it so big time. But God lifts that condemnation from you. He wants to convict you of your sin and he will embrace you as his daughter, as his son. I think that happens at the table because there is music at the table for listening. You might be like that prodigal son who's convinced, you know, he has long ago lost any chance to be welcomed back into the household. But believe it, there is no condemnation, not at the table. Whatever concerns you have about the love of God, listen to the Spirit testifying with your spirit, with that little voice in you that says, I I think there's something good in me. I think I have possibilities. I, I think with some power in my life, I could be I could be a productive human being again. Listen to that voice and then hear the voice of the Holy Spirit witnessing, saying, amen, that's right. Jesus died to bring you to that point of identity. Let's find that at the table together just a moment. Let me pray and then we'll.